1: Foundation Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization
2: and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years.
1: Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to, to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio. Powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, global head of research at WisdomTree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and The Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor at WisdomTree. Our discussion is not tied to the offers of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of WisdomTree affiliates. We're gonna have a really interesting show in the second half. We're gonna be talking with an expert on China, how he sees one of the uh, the big stories of the both the, the election and sort of longer-term uh, global economy, what's going on in China. That's going to be a really interesting conversation. Uh, we're going to be talking about the election politics in the first half with, with uh, an expert focusing on that in Washington, D.C. But Professor Siegel, it's been another eventful week, no stimulus package. We thought we might get that last yeah, week.
2: Yeah, I, I, we had that great news just before the last one, and uh, Kudlow was premature definitely on that. It, uh, you know, a, 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 a disappointment. Um, uh, I was actually on c n b c later that day I mean uh we would be better off with a stimulus package there's there 's no question there will be a stimulus package on after the election no matter who who would would it be in January with the new congress or or who are, no matter who wins it's it 's it 's really too bad that people are being held hostage uh here to uh to the politics of the situation it 's not impossible that something is going to get done but two weeks, of the election, you know, one wonders what calculations I know that the Pelosi is getting heat from another, uh, the Democrats, but you know, they can't argue with the polls going her way. And so she thinks she, she holds a, uh, uh, a winning hand. Uh, yeah, let's talk a little bit about really no big movement in the polls. I mean, in the, in, in the betting market, I'm predicted it, it's 60, 40 Biden, uh, Trump, um, uh, it's a few, certainly a few points better than when he first got COVID and people were really about worried about, you know, how to get through it. Um, the, uh, if, you know, if you go to the, um, uh, Nate Silver, he thinks it's 88.12. Now, you know, people say, yeah, but he was wrong four years, four years ago. Well, at that particular point, I think he said 72-28. So actually now he's, he, 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 the polls uh if the polls are as wrong as they were in in 16 uh Trump will still lose so you know the now biden has moved to a point where in every state if they are as wrong as they were now could they be more wrong of course they could um it, i've mentioned a number of times that a lot of corrections were made and the posters were right in uh, 18 although you know trump wasn't directly on the uh uh ballots uh, back then so you know there there's there's still a possibility on the senate still 2 to 1 again if the election were real today uh the democrats would have uh, and they went exactly according to the betting markets right now it'd be 51 um, 49 democrats uh as i i think the the i think the markets can definitely live with a, de- a biden and a 51 49 um uh you know they're not going to love the tax increase but uh they're going to love the spending if um, uh, now if there's a democratic wave now there's a lot of confusion in what that means some people see a democratic wave is they take all three branches that's not a wave that's almost expected at this particular juncture i mean way in addition so the democrats pick up uh you know 10 seats go to you know 5644 i i think that would be a little troublesome for the market I would have to digest that because there's more chance of a more radical, uh, Democratic perspective. 5149, they could live with. There will be a tax increase. It wouldn't be radical, or there wouldn't be a lot of radical measures, you know, that would be enacted. Um, I also looked at the betting markets. There's a betting market for when the election will be called. Uh, right now it's, um, uh... It's up to 71%. It'll be called on Tuesday or Wednesday. That was l- lower than 50% at one point. So people think it's going to be called. That uncertainty is going to more out of the way. That's one reason the markets are responding well. They don't want election uncertainty and fights and all the rest. You know, Biden's going to win. All right, let him win and let there be a transition. So definitely, there's there's uh, there's there's going to be that 5149. If it does turn out that way in the Senate. I don't. I, I imagine there there will be a tax reform. It will be it will be punishing on capital gains uh, for high income people. There's just no question about it. Um, but uh, it will be moderated along the edges. Um, and I think that that's what the market's saying on that. That's why it could be a problem with something like a 56-57 Democratic uh, win. Um, on the economy side. You yeah, know, we got retail sales, which uh, were really fairly good. I mean, you know, the virus is going up. Yes, hospitalizations are going up. Deaths are not going up, although some people do refer to the lag. We just know how to treat them much better. Um, I mean, uh, uh, let, let me mention about the um, the Pfizer news on that they uh, could be seeking a EUA, which is a mutual emergency use uh, authorization for their vaccine in mid November um i uh, mid or, or end of, of november um my belief is that they wouldn't say that, that they are required to follow um after the trials are over even after it shows effectiveness i mean it could be 99% in fact i don't believe it's going to be that high but it could be they cannot uh, apply for EUA until they have 2 months of data post that people aren't getting sick and they're through waiting in that now so it's it's I'm reading between the lines I think they got some really good news on this the data but they're holding back I mean obviously it's going to be post election but they're holding back um, because they need the two months of safety data in order to qualify for FDA EUA so you know, I, I read that in between the lines is that that we got we do have a successful um vaccine there which is positive. Others are going to be there. I do know there's been some more halts. Um you know, a lot of that is to be expected. Um but um I, I think the Pfizer news is is, is 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 definitely uh is definitely good news uh, there. So I think everyone's now gonna be waiting I mean we're tired with the ads there's so many of them we are know well, people supposed to be 94% have made up their minds although in a close election that other 6% at the end could in fact uh, move it uh, um, uh, uh one way or the other stocks actually doing a little bit better i mean you know nasdaq rose right and and it be close to the highs it's faltered a little bit subsequent to that um but uh uh let me mention a little bit uh before we go to our the questions I know that people have written in. Um, you know, the basic premise of my optimism all the way from April, May onward was this tremendous increase in liquidity and people ask me, uh they say, Jeremy, yeah, there was a great great big increase in M one, M two money supplies. Has that continued? Yes, at a much more moderate rate. Um, the big burst came from March to June where we had almost a 40 percent increase, again, the biggest in 75 years uh, hump, in, in that short a period. Um, since then it's been moderate, but I've looked at the percentage increase and we're still 10, 12 percent increase in M1 and M2. So we're still uh, I, uh, which is twice the increase that we had before the COVID. So it's not increasing as fast. Now, if we get a stimulus bill, I expect, you know, those checks are going to be going into people's deposits funded by the Federal Reserve. I expect another burst of, um, of uh, liquidity then. Again, the, the, that 2021 is going to be an extremely uh, strong year uh, in the economy.
1: Yeah, we're you know, the uh, if you think about what can is there any news that can turn it from um from Biden, you know, there's there's obviously some more news stories this week on on Biden or are, are anything these things do you
2: think at the margin going to Yeah, I mean I I imagine there's going to be uh, October surprises. Uh, both of them are holding back information. Um the truth of it is I think the public has gotten kind of immune. Um I mean, you know, uh uh to a lot of it. Uh, I, 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 I hearken back, uh, how many was it, uh, 20 years ago? Um, Bush against Gore, and a week before the election, um, it was revealed that uh, Bush was uh, arrested for a DUI, and that was considered shocking news that would turn the election. Uh, can you imagine today uh, that being considered? Shocking news given you know all the revelations in trump and and to a certain extent you know Biden but much more Trump I mean it's like huh are you kidding me um you know I, the bar has been raised so much that you know unless we have a murder somewhere here in the past uh, to, to be revealed I uh, feeling are people saying uh, more fake news more this more that you know I've made up my mind but it's you know not again, not impossible that's you know when, you know that's there you know that's why there's you know that's why they uh, that one, that's why I think the political markets are are where they were and with with these polls um uh if this was the uh day or two before the election, you know my feeling is the betting markets instead of being sixty forty would be seventy five twenty five uh in favor of biden but uh, you know again and something could be revealed. Uh, then and I'm sure both sides have ammunition to that score.
1: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see the last few weeks and we're going to be talking with a, a political strategist here for for the remainder of the, the first half here to get his take what uh, you, you know we've been we've been doing these um, f- this feature where people can write in questions to you and, and ask them at the email address for if you want to ask your questions professor Siegel ask Siegel S-I-E-G-E-L at wisdomtree.com and we, we welcome all your questions uh, and and so there' was a follow-up to last week's question professor on the holding period uh, and they, you, you know, in terms of the the returns in long-term returns versus short-term returns, you know, you mentioned older investors might initially say they have a longer holding period, but they still don't like volatility, and therefore the bond allocations mm. as a hedge asset, uh, you know, makes sense. I mean, they, they sort of reference, is this myopic loss aversion, that, you know, behavioral concept that people are too frequently watching what's going on yes. and uh, underestimating holding periods. And then how do you think about this for people, and, and how should they adjust their holding per- their period as they age to yeah. manage assets? Yeah, I mean, this? it's
2: really, this is really hard. You're, 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 you have to o- uh, overcome very strong psychological Forces, um, which is, um, I mean, I mean, you just take a look at COVID. I mean, you know, it was down 32 uh, percent in in a few weeks, and people panicked, and then it regained all and more. Now, if you're a 30-year holder, you know, you say, "Oh my God, look at that blip." Didn't matter, um, and yet it affects people dramatically because they have to think, "Oh my God, if it stays down." Which no sell-off has stayed down but nonetheless you know uh, you know you know what the narratives become uh, can I survive and I mean and, 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 and that fear is what drives people to fixed income and why stocks usually get uh, you know we, we, we call it the equity risk premium it's so high because of this psychological fear and you could call it uh, you know loss aversion you know kind of and Tversky and in, in terms of behavioral economics what you know we we we, we just hate to take losses uh, we overreact to the short run um, and it has to be a trained uh, reasoned um, a process by which you can overcome it and everyone has it and it, it it is not easy but that is you know the reason why people hold bonds and given the volatility you know we've you know, we had the barrier. we had the dot-com crash, and we had the financial crash, and then we had the kill COVID. Again, huge bounce backs, which brought the market to way all-time high. If you have 30-year allocations, you shouldn't have, you know, cared at all. Um, and yet, um, you know, those drive that move towards bonds.
1: Well, very good. Thanks uh, for starting the show here with us. Have a great weekend.
2: Thank you very much. See you next week.
1: I'm going to introduce our guest, Jonathan Ward, who's the founder of the Consultancy Atlas organization, who's focused on the rise of China, as well as the U.S.-China global competition. Dr. Ward wrote a book last year, China's Vision of Victory. Thank you for joining us on Behind the Markets.
0: Hi, Jeremy. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Great to talk to you. Uh, Maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about your research and uh, yourself, and then we can get into the thesis and and what you wrote about in China's Vision of Victory.
0: Sure, you bet. So, um, you know, my work is basically on Chinese grand strategy. Um, I did my doctorate at the University of Oxford in China-India relations, Um, spent about a decade abroad in a variety of different places around Eurasia, particularly Asia and the Indo-Pacific. Um, then came back to D.C. Um, you know, founded my consultancy, started working with the U.S. Department of. Fence, and then with Fortune 500s uh, to help people navigate these new changes in the U.S.-China relationship and understand um, the long-term vision that the Communist Party of China, um, you know, holds and is executing upon. So this, of course, is has uh, changed everything really in the last few years. I mean, it, the, the sort of advent of Chinese military power, the, the sort of um, unveiling of their broader global ambitions, and obviously the United States has now begun to respond to all of that. Um, and China's vision of Victory was just uh, essentially the first book to put um, Chinese Communist Party uh, official documents, um, you know, the strategy documents, the vision statements, all the stuff that really shows you how this machine works, how this vision is conceived, to put that all before the reader. So it it had a very nice impact. It was very widely read, especially in government and national security, starting to be read in the finance and business community. And, you know, it's a guide to what's really going on here and what we're dealing with as a country. So it's kind of a need to know.
1: All right. So, in in obviously the the book is uh, got a, a lot of details in there. But if you say you're if you want to paint people's in, in in sort of short synopsis form, what is China's vision of victory there?
0: Sure. So it's an idea that that um, you know the the party has brought to the Chinese people, and they call it the Great Rejuvenation of the Chinese Nation. And it's this concept that China was essentially humiliated at the hands of foreign empires, and that now they're on track to regain their position of supremacy. In the international system. So they see themselves as a country that was dominant in the known world uh, prior to, you know, contact with nearly with, um, the West and, and other places, um, and that finally through the leadership of the party, and this has been a long-term project since 1949, they're going to um, take their place, their rightful place as they see it, um, at the head of all nations and essentially to dominate the international system. And they intend to do this uh, through essentially um, becoming the world's leading economy, the world's top military, uh, the world's leading technological power. And, you know, all of their strategy documents express very clearly how this works, industry by industry, technology by technology, region by region across the globe. I mean, they have strategies for everything from Africa to the Antarctic, from AI to, um, you know, key strategic industries. And um, they look at the United States as the obstacle to their ultimate uh, seizure of power. Yeah, I mean,
1: I, the, the, this topic is coming up increasingly. I mean, the, the, the friction that the, we had to focus on a trade war. I was listening to actually just earlier t- this morning, Citadel Securities was hosting Hank Paulson talk about the China relationship. And he's been warning about a China economic uh, iron curtain that can sort of fall on us. Uh, and and I, I think you would describe China as a a major adversary that we have. How how would you just say like with this adversarial relationship? Um, you know, how do you see this playing out over to, over time?
0: Sure. Well, I mean, they've been very explicit about their desire to build military power um, and to um, go to war with their neighbors. So that's that's one thing that I think people need to take note of. I mean, just this week, Xi Jinping was talking to the Chinese Marines and saying that they need to focus on uh, preparing for war. Um, This is sort of a common you know, thing that he'll say to to troops that's been going on for for some years now. Um, So certainly their military ambitions. I mean, you had the first use of the Chinese military in the 21st century on the Indian border um, just this summer. And yet in the 20th century, they went to war with um, the USSR, with India, with Vietnam. They fought the United Nations and the United States and the Korean Peninsula. So there's some very clear military ambitions here as well. And I think that is um, exceedingly dangerous. Um, There's also what some call the ideological competition. I mean, China's goal I mean, they were very explicit in an internal party document about trying to stomp out um, any sort of uh, uh, tendency towards constitutional democracy, um, universal human rights, uh, Western values, these sorts of things. So the party sees all of that as a threat. Um, And ultimately... Their goals are really uh, to consolidate a new trading system with China at the center, I mean, that's what you see in the Belt and Road, to dominate major strategic industries. That's what you see in Made in China 2025, and to convert this all into military power that will allow them to prevail in conflict um, with any given neighbor or with the United States itself. Um, so they're converting the economic engagement that people like Hank Paulson led for many years in U.S. policy into military power that's ultimately directed against the U.S. and our allies.
1: Yeah. When you think about that military potential um, conflicts, I mean, there's you're, you did a big study on China and India relations. That seemed to be one of the things that was flaring up recently. There's a, there's a perennial discussions about Taiwan. Uh, what do you think is the most likely if there is a real actual conflict in in militarily, where do you think it's going to come from? What's most likely?
0: Well, if if there were to be um, a military conflict, it would be somewhere that they consider to be their sort of uh, immediate core interests or, um, you know, sort of near uh, peripheral geography. So that could be South China Sea, it could be Taiwan, it could certainly be the China-India border. Um, You know, there there are quite a lot of, uh, you know, things that they, they... Take uh,
1: take quite seriously. We're talking with jo- Dr. Jonathan Ward, who is uh, has an Atlas Consultancy He's focused on the relationship with China. And and Dr. Ward, you talk a lot about sort of the the civil military fusion in terms of everything going on there, having this this military ties. Maybe expand on um, on where that comes into focus for you as as people think about uh, maybe investing in China.
0: Sure. Well, civil military fusion is, is is really the main reason. Um, that the China's a dangerous investment. Um, and, and the reason is they're converting their civilian industries into military potential. And this takes place in, in ways that we wouldn't think of um, conventionally when we're thinking about military power. I and mean, it's not just you know, um, AVIC building um, next-gen fighters or, or CSSC-building ships. Um, I mean, they're also converting logistics companies, tech companies, all of this into um, elements of, of a, you know, a new, um, you know, modernized military that in some ways is designed, um, you know, on, on the U.S. joint force and in others is, is quite a unique um, uh, thing. But the bottom line is, you're, you're, you know, you're talking about taking the civilian economy, converting it into military power, and when investors are looking into China, uh, they need to realize that essentially what we're doing is we're funding this buildup of, um, of a hostile, um, you know, military power. And and the other side of it, of course, is the human rights abuses. I mean, the systemic, um, you know, state-sanctioned um, human rights abuses in Xinjiang or Tibet or elsewhere, um, the high-tech surveillance system. I mean, these are all the uses that are, that are you know, coming um into the picture as as we go and engage with them on trade and tech and all the rest of it. I mean, keep in mind that in the in the 1980s they were essentially an agrarian economy. and the last 40 years, have turned them into something that um, you know has has wildly altered the military balance in the Pacific and created um, a leading edge um, economy that can innovate. Um, and the idea that that's a good place to seek long term returns, I think, um, misunderstands that that this place is is headed into some. Some, some real dangerous territory in its region and with the world. Um, so bottom line, the other side of it is the U.S. is going to have to sanction this place. You know, I think what we've seen under the current administration is really just the beginning of what needs to be done in terms of cutting down their ability to produce, um, you know, geopolitical power. So for an investor to be essentially, um, you know, funding and and contributing to the strategic industries, the emerging technologies, um, the the general economic power of this adversarial nation is, uh, you know, I I think that's a very, uh, very dangerous place to be
1: I mean, it's it's interesting. On talking about the return opportunity. I mean, China, we think about the tensions that we've had with the trade tensions with Trump. Uh, it's still been uh, within the emerging markets that, that people look at as strategic allocations. It's been one of the best performing emerging markets. Their share in broad indexes keep rising. It's up to about 40% of the broad MSCI emerging markets index is now coming to China. China tech has been a real standout this year. And if you think about who can compete with US tech, you don't see the sort of growth profiles that we have in in the U.S. of a Google and and Facebook and Amazon, uh, as you do as you get like an Alibaba and Tencent and Baidu and, and those companies over there. Um, it, it, so it's interesting, you know, in this in where this relationship shakes out, uh, and and your point on sanctioning and the, and the potential. You know, there's there's movements from people to restrict pension investments in China. Is, is that things you think people should be getting ahead of? How do you think these relationships are going to play out?
0: Yes, I mean, I mean, to be invested in this place, of course, it's growing. I mean, this is let me tell you what um, the, the, uh, the Pentagon's report to Congress was saying this summer, that China has the largest standing ground force, the world's largest Coast Guard, the world's largest Navy, the Indo-Pacific's largest air forces. I mean, this is what you're, this is what's growing. Over there. I mean, it's you know, if one looks at this in terms of growth rates and returns, I mean, you know, I, I'm sure there were there were business relationships with um, you know Germany in the 1930s and such. You have to understand where the geopolitics are headed, and you have to understand what this place is trying to do, um, and you know, to to, to to look at a growing totalitarian state that's in conflict with its region. And is essentially the chief adversary of the United States of America as an investment opportunity, I, I think is, um, you know, just really begs the question of, of how, um, you know, do, do people really understand what they're doing? I, I don't think I don't think that um, that this has all fully been processed um, in the investment community.
1: And so, you know, certainly when we at the uh, at the end of our last session, we had you know discussion on on so you have Trump on one end of the spectrum ramping up tensions with china uh maybe you put uh the, our last guest put obama you know if you put a one to ten you they ha- he had obama as a one and trump as a ten on on sort of antagonism with china and he put actually biden as a five or six if you think about the future relationships do you do you agree with that characterization where do you think the the, the future administrations might
0: lean in the relationships with china well, I think the problem is really just getting started. It's been brewing for for you know at least a decade or two, but just now are we coming into an awareness of what this situation is and I, I think you're right. I mean Obama was part of sort of a broad u um, s strategy that that in, is inherited from Kissinger of engagement. But let me read you a quote from a chinese um, you know official communist party newspaper during the Obama years. This is in two thousand and thirteen before the trade war um, you know before any of really um U.S. uh, response to China's uh, dangerous ambitions. It says, um, because the Midwestern states of the United States are sparsely populated, in order to improve the killing effect, the nuclear killing of U.S. soft targets should concentrate on major major cities on the West Coast, such as Seattle, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and San Diego. If the Dongfeng 31A is launched over the North Pole, it can easily destroy a series of large cities on the East Coast and in New England, such as Ann Arbor, Philadelphia, New York, Boston, Portland, Baltimore, and Norfolk. The population of these cities accounts for one-eighth of the total population of the United States. And that's right in the heart of the years of engagement. I mean, this is, what it, this is what's going on in Chinese language, and I don't think that's really what, what people have been aware of as they pursue it as a business opportunity. So you're,
1: you know, when you think about what you're doing, you know, so you're working with, um, a, your consultancy is trying to consult our politicians. How are you working with, with companies to try to advise on, on strategy?
0: Uh, sure. So, I mean, my, you know, what, what I do, I mean, on one hand, my, my book has been widely read in government, you know, I was invited to the White House for the signing ceremony, the phrase one trade deal and, um, commended by the president in front of, Fortune 500 CEOs, which was a, an interesting moment in life. Um, but what we do for companies um, is to help them under you know sort of rethink China risk, understand the risk profile that they actually have when um, you know based on their operations and goals in the China market and in the broader Indo-Pacific. We help them understand uh, risks emanating from the U.S. response to China as a geopolitical adversary. Uh, We help them with aspects of of India as well. I mean, that's another key feature of this. And uh, we've also worked with funds as well to help them understand portfolio risk. Um, you know, and and also to look for you know the other side of this equation is that the United States is going to have to win the economic contest with China. I mean, it's the only way to tip the balance here. If these guys keep catching up to us economically, ultimately the military balance will 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 fail, and um, you really could proceed towards um, you know something like a a, a permanent um, ascendancy of the PRC. So. You know, as the U.S. gets in gear to um, start to win this long competition, or at the very least um, attempt to to prosecute this long-term competition, it's going to require rebuilding our strategic industries, leading in the key emerging technologies, um, withholding those as best one can from the People's Republic of China, but also integrating with our allies and partners worldwide from India to Japan to Europe to a whole bunch of other places. So, you know, there, there's an opportunity side here because the United States is going to have to win an economic competition. And, um, you know, we also talk to people a great deal about what, uh, what that could look like and what the, the key pieces on the, on the radar screen uh, are starting to be.
1: You know, if if so, if if the U.S. gets into this real deep adversarial relationship, you'd have to, you know, to block other, you know, the, the, it's a global economy here. And, you know, people do not like the trade war dynamics that certainly create a lot of ramifications throughout throughout the markets. You know, do you, how consensus around the globe and in other parts of the world, do they view the same relationship? Is Europe viewing China the same? Is is, is the rest of Asia viewing it the same way? How do, how do you think that relationship Well, Jeremy, it's... It,
0: It's a global political economy. So at the end of the day, I mean, to look at this from the perspective of markets and think that this is all just gonna be seamlessly integrated misunderstands, you know, many, you know, important realities of, of, you know, world affairs, I mean, this is, you know, we are deeply into an adversarial relationship with China, and this has already begun. I mean, their ambitions are very, you know, on very clear display here, and we're sort of waking up to that, and ultimately it's going to um, consolidate and new international relationships. I mean, Europe is starting to get this picture. I mean, the human rights side is... Has been a wake up for them. Hong Kong has been a wake up for them. Um, you know, I speak to to European uh, defense departments and things like that. They all understand this pretty pretty well. Um, you know, China's losing its relationship with India. Um, it's you know got very tough tensions with Japan. So um, so so I think to look at this purely through the lens of global markets and to and to not um, incorporate the sea change in geopolitics. You know, because geopolitics basically became a sort of bargain bin concept i think in the last 20 years maybe i mean it's the world has been so stable based on the U.S. victory in the Cold War, that that you really could have this sort of globalization of markets, et cetera. But um, today that's all changing, mainly because of the rise of China. Um, You know, I think Russia and a few others impact that too. But you're talking about a very different world here. And I think it's time for people to start putting those pieces together, understanding what, you know, how this is shaping up for the next decade. I mean, you really have to think a little more long-term about it to understand, um, you know, the direction of what's happening right in front of us. And and within that, you have a, a very new system, I think, that's going to be taking shape. Um, and the fundamental, you know, entree points to understanding this are, are one, what China wants, because that's been, you know, what the vision of victory is. I mean, that's that's a very clear thing on which to base an understanding of the next decade. And then also that the United States cannot accept that. I mean, you know, what they have in mind is something that really, uh, you know, won't be accepted by America. And we have a bipartisan consensus on China as a very dangerous place at this point. So, so I think investors need to need to um, be working within a new framework for understanding, um, you know, what's going to happen in the world.
1: Yeah, I mean, the bipartisan nature is, I think, one of the interesting things, you know, because I, I think there is a bunch, you know, including myself, who would have said that I thought, uh, you know, Trump was going to be the more antagonistic, but the more the bipartisan it becomes that that, that perhaps, you know, it, even under a Biden victory in this this upcoming election, something that we'll all we'll have to be watching pretty closely. What, what do you think the most likely next, so there was the big trade friction as you think about the different policy actions, you mentioned sanctions, you know, how close do you think that type of, of actions are? Where where do you think actually the the battleground for what we, you know, what the U.S. is, is going to do,
0: steps that we might take in, in this relationship? I think it, it really comes down to China's access to, to finance um, from the United States and from the West more broadly. Um, I mean, if you look at what's happened thus far in, in American policy, I mean, commerce has, has used um, a pretty uh, effective toolkit in the entities list and, and, you know, other forms of export control. Um you know, State Department has obviously reoriented towards uh, China as the strategic uh, challenger and threat. Um, but really, Treasury, I think, has not yet um, you know been been brought to the table on this in the in a way that would be um, you know it, uh, bring impairment to to China's ambitions. and And Treasury is a massive and important toolkit that's been used in the past. So so I think the finance side is the piece that um, that is really yet to be deployed. Um, and you know, that, that in many ways is, is, uh, where a lot of the, the biggest, uh, guns are.
1: We're sort of in a final closing thoughts, any, you know, where people can stay in touch with your work and where they can find you if they want to engage you for, for different relationships.
0: Sure. Absolutely. You can visit, um, my website, my company Atlas organization. So atlasorganization.com. Um, you know, we've got, we've got a, an info page there. You just write to us that way. And um, you know that we 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 do consultations. We work with with all kinds of um, different organizations and companies and funds and such. Uh, so please do be in touch. This was
1: a, a very, you know, interesting conversation, Doctor Ward. I mean, there's, uh, it's a pretty, a pretty straight view on on where you think the relationships are, and uh, and to and be 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 cautious on China is, is obviously the bottom line of your your conclusion. But uh, no, thanks for joining us to to discuss this. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM One Thirty Two. Thanks to our producer Patty Hall, our sound engineer Chris Tooks. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week. Have a great week, everybody.